I have had to go to graduate school. How many of you have had to go to graduate school for some reason? Okay, so a few hands. So allow me to articulate what happens in graduate school. In graduate school, there are two types of students. There are the eager beavers. Ooh, 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 the, the Hermione Grangers. Okay? And then there are the people who are there because they have to be there. And at some point in the semester, they approach the professor and they say, what do I need to do to pass this class? And they're asking because if they get a D, they're okay with that. They want to know what the bare minimum is in order to get the credit for the class. So in my second graduate degree, I started off an eager beaver, and I finished as one of the reluctant. But I had a friend named Doug, and Doug was an eager beaver all five years. All five years, okay? Ooh, ooh, ooh. At the, he dominated every single class I ever had with him. So he would have comments. He would have insights. He would correct the professor. He would challenge the professor. He would attempt through questioning at the end of class to demonstrate he knew more than the professor. Doug, that's the name I'm giving him. Doug, had a, he always enjoyed telling me his GPA, which was, guess what? 4.0. Not my GPA, but that was his. And so the last week of classes, he's so excited. And I remember having a conversation with him. Because I was like, Max, Max, they give out awards, and man, I'm going to get the theology award, and this is going to be awesome, blah, 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 And this was the same week that I had my thesis debacle, okay? <laughs> and so Dr. Kinghorn, the rescuer that I mentioned last week, uh, he came to me and he said, look, uh, I need you to be in chapel this week for senior chapel. I want all of my students there. So I'm like, okay, you know, he could have asked me to wear a tutu, you know, uh, I love John Wesley t-shirt. Like, I would have done anything he asked because he rescued me from academic ruin. So I go thinking, well, he wants all of his students there. And so when the time came for them to announce this winner of this blobbity blobbity theology award, the person at the stage is going on and on, brightest student we've had in a decade, da-da-da, and I'm thinking, man, Doug's going to enjoy this. Only when they got to the end and they announced the name, it wasn't Doug's. It was my name. No one was more surprised in that room, other than Doug, than me, because, because I knew what my GPA was, <laughs> and surely someone in the registrar's office knew what my GPA was. I mean, every time I went in to see the registrar, she looked at me, and before she ever said a word, this is what she did. She sighed. My presence in her office elicited a sigh of utter despair, and so... I have to admit, in that moment as I was ascending the steps, thank, thank goodness God didn't strike me dead because I had this moment of pride. I, ran, I, ran, I was like, man, is this ironic? And this is going to be even more ironic talking to Doug after today, like, <laughs> right? And so I know what it is to have things get reversed, to have a surprise. And you're going to find this in life. Life is full of reversals. Life is full of reversals. Marriages that seem perfect for 25 years or more. There's an affair and a divorce. A friend who you follow in Christmas cards, and every year they're more successful. They now have 15 rental properties, and now they're a broker in their firm, and they went to the Riviera with their whole family, and blah, 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 blah. And then you hear one year through friends, they went bankrupt and they lost their home. Other kinds of reversals happen. You have a, uh, someone that you go to school with, 
and they're quiet and they don't say anything and they're not involved in any extracurriculars at all. And then 15 years later, you're seeing the New York Times bestseller list and you're like, wait a minute, isn't that Gary from Blackford High School? Like what? And your, your mind is blown. At Wheaton College, there was this lanky track star. He wasn't even a track star. He just ran track. He didn't do anything else but run and track. His name was Rob Bell. And for a whole decade, pastors all across this country would go to Michigan so he could tell them how they could grow their churches by preaching from Leviticus for three years. And people did in droves, not preach from Leviticus, but go attend his conferences. So life is full of reversals. And so today, I want to remind you that with God, the way up is down. And one surefire way in life to get knocked down is to climb over other people. And I want to unpack that today by following along in the account of Esther, okay? The book of Esther contains one of the most dramatic reversals in all of Scripture. So by way of reminder, for those of you just coming in today, Esther was a young Jewish woman who was made queen of Persia. The prime minister of Persia, a man named Haman, hated the Jews. And he managed to secure an edict from the king that would authorize people all throughout the Persian Empire to kill any Jews they wanted and take their property as their own in one year's time. So in a last-ditch effort to stop this government-authorized slaughter, Mordecai, Esther's uncle and the man who raised her from childhood when she became an orphan, Mordecai convinces her to go before the king. But there are risks. There are risks. Esther hasn't been in the presence of the king for over 30 days. And since this is PG-13, that meant that the king was having other women from the harem come in on a nightly basis. It wasn't Esther's beauty. It wasn't what Esther could do in the bedroom. And so she's in this season on the outs, so to speak, with King Xerxes. And then there's the whole thing about power. Remember what I said about the ancient world? In the ancient world, absolute power meant the power of life and death. If I don't like you, Isaiah, and you really make me mad one day, off with his head! And people cover your head, they take you out, and they kill you right then and there. It's just the weirdest thing in the world. Thank goodness we don't do that anymore. Okay? And so there are risks. And Xerxes had a reputation for being a hothead. There is a story uh, that actually happened. Uh, there was a man who had five sons, and the Persian War with the Greeks that I mentioned a couple of Sundays ago, uh, the man was a wealthy noble in Persia, and he asked King Xerxes, could you not take all five of my sons for this military campaign? They're all I have. I need at least one heir. I'm happy to support the king. You know, I'll give to the war effort. Not a problem. Can I just save this one son right here? And so Xerxes' response to that was to have the man cut in half, and then he had the two parts of the man set on the road, and he marched his army through the guy's son cut in half. This is the man that Esther is going to go ask to get a reprieve from an edict that can't ever be changed. <laughs> okay, so there's a lot of risk. But Esther says, go and tell people to fast for three days. Me and my maids will do the same. And on the third day, I'll go in and I'll ask. That brings us to Esther chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and entered the inner court of the palace just across from the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne facing the entrance. 
So Esther comes to him, not as a sex kitten or somebody who can have any kind of favor done to her, but she comes as queen, and she is not sure how he's going to respond. And the king basically says, what's your request? I'll give to you even if it's half my kingdom. Now, you've probably heard this from other parts in Scripture. Herod says this. There's a woman dancing, and he says, up to half my kingdom you can have. Ladies, I got news for you. When, when the man ruler in ancient times says this, he doesn't mean it literally. What he's really saying is, I'm in a good mood, try me. So it's an idiom, it's, it's expression, and no ruler is going to give up half of what they have. And so this expression means, I'm in a good mood, I'll probably be gracious to what you're asking, go ahead and ask. It's a good day to ask, ask. And so Esther defers, and she says to uh, King Xerxes, basically, tell you what, uh, come to a banquet, and that's what I want you to do. And so uh, Haman and King Xerxes go to this banquet. So that's Esther chapter 5, verse uh, 5 and following. The king turned to his attendants and said, tell Haman to come quickly to a banquet as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to Esther's banquet. So ironically, the woman who has no real power is getting the king of the most powerful nation on the earth and the prime minister of the most powerful nation on the earth at that time to come and do what she wants, come to my banquet. And they come. And so at the banquet, the king asks again, now tell me what you really want. What's your request? I'll give it to you, even if it is half my kingdom. The king is signaling to Esther that he'll likely grant her request. What do you want? Just ask me. And again, Esther defers. Come back to another banquet tomorrow night. And then I'll explain what this is all about, oh my king. And so that's where things leave off at the end of Esther chapter 5, verse 6. So the king and the prime minister leave, but Haman, the prime minister, runs across Mordecai on the way home, verse 9. Haman was a happy man as he left the banquet, but when he saw Mordecai sitting at the palace gate, not standing up or trembling nervously before him, Haman became furious. However, he restrained himself and went home, and he gathered his wife and his friends. So Haman, just seeing Mordecai there, enrages him, enrages him. And he can only think of himself. He can't enjoy his position. He can't enjoy anything. And this is borne out in verses 12 and 13. With his wife and his friends there, Haman says this, that's not all. Queen Esther, Queen Esther invited only me and the king to the banquet she prepared, and she's invited me to dine with her and the king tomorrow. Aren't I special? Woohoo! But all this is worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew just sitting there at the palace gate. Now, look at me, do not look at your neighbor. Let's be honest for a moment. Some of us have been places in life where, just like Haman, there is someone that we hated so much despised so much that just the sight of them or just a post on Facebook would ruin our entire day. So this thing that's going on in Haman isn't necessarily something that's just a Haman thing. There's a little bit of Haman that goes on in all of us as we go through life and as people 
offend us, etc. So Haman's friends offer some advice, and they basically say, look, you're the prime minister. Impale the guy on a stake tomorrow and be done with it. Come on, live your best life, Haman, come on. And so Haman thinks this is great advice, and he's determined that early the next morning, he's going to get this edict, and he's going to have Mordecai impaled. And so that's where we leave things. And at this moment, if Haman succeeds, there's nothing that Queen Esther will be able to do. Her banquet with the king and with the prime minister is tomorrow night. So she will be powerless to stop this. But there's an amazing plot twist in chapter 6. That night, the king can't sleep. He can't sleep. And so he asks the historians, the court historians, to bring out the chronicles and have them read to him. Maybe he thinks it'll help him doze off. Maybe he's in a not-so-great mood. And remember, ancient kings, their chronicles would always chronicle their successes, not their failures, and so it would be a reminder of how awesome you are. <laughs> so we don't know why the king, why King Xerxes asked to have this read, but he has it read. And they come to an account where Mordecai had saved his life by reporting an assassination attempt four years earlier. And Xerxes finds out that nothing has been done to reward Mordecai. Now, Persian kings were famous for rewarding loyalty. And so Xerxes is like, I got to do something. I can't have it be the case that the man who saved my life gets jack squat nothing. I mean, holy cow. So the next morning, King Xerxes is in court. Haman comes early. Haman's excited because he's going to have Mordecai the Jew killed and impaled on a stake. King Xerxes is excited because he's going to get some advice and counsel about how to reward, guess who? Mordecai the Jew, and they come together unknowing, all right? Not knowing what the other person wants. So Haman came in, and the king said, what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Xerxes doesn't mention the name of the man. And Haman, this is the second part of the verse, Haman thought to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So Haman spells out this scenario for King Xerxes. Well, let me tell you what you should do, O king. First of all, get your ring, put it on this man's finger. Take your royal robe, have it placed on the man, and then summon your chariot and your war horse, the one that you ride leading the army into battle, Put that man in there and then have a herald go throughout the entire city of Susa with a gospel proclamation. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And have it go all throughout the city of Susa. And some of you are like, I've heard that before. Yes, you have. <laughs> yes, you have. And so then comes the kicker, verse 7. And if this were a movie, if this were a movie, the camera would pan in to... Haman's face, all of the music would stop and you would see the blood drain out of his face. Excellent, the king said to Haman. Quick, take the robes and my horse and do just as you've said for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the gate of the palace. Leave out nothing you've suggested. So now Haman, who had come to the palace court that morning fully expecting that he would have Mordecai killed, 
has to be the herald who holds the leader for the horse leading the chariot through the city. This is the son in whom the king is well pleased. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. And he has to do this a thousand times through the city of Susa. Irony, irony, irony. Oh, but it gets more ironic. So the king and Haman went to the queen Esther's second banquet later that day. On this second occasion, while they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it's half my kingdom. So then Esther lays it out. If I found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant to disturb the king. And then the question, who, who would do such a thing? Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? And again, the camera zooms in to the face of Haman as Esther points to him and says, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. Now, the king leaves in a rage and goes out to a, a terrace balcony uh, with guard, garden stuff. And he is, I don't know how we describe it. It's a terrace balcony. He goes out to this terrace balcony and he's furious. He's steaming mad. So Haman has three not good options. He can follow the king out into the terrace balcony. Remember absolute power off with his head? <laughs> and Haman's the guy that's done the bad thing. Or he can flee and hope that the king's soldiers won't catch him and he, he'll make it out of the city. Uh, or he can beg for his life from guess who? Esther. So he chooses door number three. Now, the thing you need to know about Persian law is that no one can be more than seven steps from, uh, from the queen without someone accompanying them, okay? So you cannot approach the queen, you know. Uh, you have to be seven or more steps away. So... Xerxes comes back into the room where they've been having this banquet, and here's Haman on the floor at the feet of Esther. And King says, will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my eyes? And as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his old cartyard. He intended to use it to impel Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. Now, if this were a Disney film, Haman would look at the guy and say something like, gee, thanks a lot. You need to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> but it's not a Disney film. And, and so they impale Haman on the very pole that he set up for Mordecai. No one would have seen this coming. It is a complete reversal. And again, I want to point out that it's not Mordecai who's the hero. It's not Esther who's the hero. It's God. I mean, whose wisdom is being executed in this grand reversal? Is this some plan that Esther or Mordecai had? Nope. 
Who keeps the king awake that night? Why does the king have, of all things, his chronicles read to him? And then, why is it that they happen to be across the passage that names Mordecai and his actions in preventing an assassination four years earlier? Why does the king neglect to name the man that he wants to honor when he asks Haman, how should I honor this person? Right? And why does the king ask his prime minister to be the herald and not one of the palace staff? All of these things are just coincidences. Wink, wink. Coincidences. So let me ask a few questions. In what areas of your life do you feel like God has forgotten you? If anything, in the book of Esther, up until this grand reversal, it doesn't look like the good guys are going to win. It doesn't look like good things are going to happen. And it would be very easy to conclude that God's not at work at all. And yet, this string of coincidences can't be explained away other than the work of the Almighty behind the scenes. And then, what parts of your life seem unfair? And then lastly, who gets life and who gets death? Who gets life and who gets death? So if I could suggest some practical ways to take this home, the first would be judging others to make yourself feel better is really a form of pride. Beware. Team USA loves to do this. We love to do this on social media. Uh, we'll make videos. Um, we'll have memes. Uh, I can sing the song, these are the people of Walmart. Um, there are the epic fail videos, the people crashing and smashing on the highway, the people falling in the big vats of mud. We love to watch people getting flailed. Um, and then there's the dynamic that Americans, particularly Americans in the South, can have about talking about someone else's problems. So in the South, we do this. And well, you know, oh, my cousin Edna, you know, bless her heart, you know, she's now with this guy and he's just like the other five guys and da -da, you know, and you tell the story and in telling the story, you can feel better about yourself because you've only had the one guy. You're doing better than, <laughs> better than your cousin. So I say that to say all of us have a little bit of Haman going on on the inside of us, okay? So beware, beware. The second thing is resenting other people's success is also a form of pride. Um, single people, have you ever seen someone start to date and thought to yourself, well, that should be me. I've been working on myself. I've been seeing a therapist. I've gone through all my issues. Why is it them and not me? Or married people, uh, you ever hear of someone else getting pregnant and thought to yourself, why do they get kids and I don't? Um, Grown-ups working in the workforce, how do you respond when someone else gets a promotion or raise? Do you immediately think, why did they get it? I work harder than they do. Again, it's a little bit of Haman going on on the inside. Just want to point out what it is. Okay? Whatever it is that you value, you probably find it hard to watch other people get it. And so pride makes it hard to celebrate other people's successes and victories and blessings because we make those events about us and what we think we should have. So a few years back, I made a, a change. I would go to these chamber events because I'm a chamber ambassador, and they give out awards like candy. And every year, everyone would get these awards, and I would not get awards. And I would have the internal thing of, well, did they not see what I do, right? The very thing I just outlined for you. So again, if you didn't know this, your pastor is a sinner who needs a savior. Okay, I want to point this out. 
So I decided in order to combat this for me in my life, that one of the things I would do is on the following of the big night of the big chamber award, anybody who got an award, I would send them a congratulatory note explaining why I felt they deserved the award. You'd be amazed what that does for you when you have to pin that in writing. And then uh, last year or two years ago, I started picking out some people that I felt deserved an award and did get one. And I would write them a note and say, I just want you to know that I see you do do, 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 do. And if ever there should have been someone on that stage, it was you. And I just want you to know, I see it, right? And so that small little act helps me to kind of combat the little Haman that I got going on in the inside of poor old Max Vanderpool, okay? A one big way to do that is to imitate Jesus and serve. So if you want to combat your inner Haman, imitate the way of Jesus. Jesus serves. Um, get your hands dirty. It's one of the things that hangs on the wall here in the sanctuary. Serve somewhere, whether that's here at Generations, working with kids or youth or singing or whatever it is, or tech, um, uh, and then serving out in the community, food pantry, homeless shelter. I don't, doesn't matter where it is. Providence School, pick someplace, right? But serve. When you're giving and serving someone else, it takes the focus off of you which helps with the inner Haman that we all have working on the inside, okay? If Haman is a case study on human pride, I want to suggest to you today as I close out that Jesus is the case study for humility. Instead of clinging to his glory, he set it aside to rescue us from our sin, brokenness, and death. Uh, Philippians 2 is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving each other, and working together. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave. And then Jesus himself puts it this way in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. So if there's one person who could have showed up on planet Earth and demanded love and obedience and everything else, it was Jesus. When Jesus started his public ministry, he could have been like, all y'all deserve death, bow down before me, make it all about me. Come on, let's go, let's go, get it in line. I mean, he could have and he would have been right to do so, but what does Jesus do instead? He serves. He heals. And the biggest example of that we see is in John chapter 13. On his last meal with his friends, while he was celebrating Passover with them, the servant girl that was supposed to be at the door wasn't there. And so they all walk in and they all sit down and recline at table with dirty feet covered in manure. And no one does the dirty job that should have been done. But guess who? Jesus. Jesus takes up a towel and a basin and he washes the feet of all of his friends who are about to desert him and the one friend who's going to betray him. He washes that man's feet, manure off of that man's feet. So the humblest man ever to walk the earth, as it turns out, is God. The humblest man ever to walk the earth is God. And if ever there was a reversal like we see in Esther, it's the grand reversal that we see in the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, on a Sunday afternoon, Jesus rides into Jerusalem with shouts of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
On Friday, he's hanging on a cross. On Saturday, he's dead. On Sunday, the tomb is empty. And no one saw it coming. No one saw it coming. Not even the disciples. So again, with Jesus, the way up is down. 